I'm not doing so well. Let me tell you why. On Thursday, I was out riding my bike, and I had a little accident. I fell off my bike. I got all scratched up. My ribs are a little bit hurt. I have this bruise here on the side, so I'm a little wobbly. But I'm telling you this to show you that you guys have a tough pastor. I'm still here, <laughs> all right? I'm going to go through it because I'm tough. But let me be honest with you. This happened when I was in a stationary bike. I was teaching a class, and I fell over. That's, that's sad. Hey, have you guys ever heard the saying, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans? Ever heard that? You want to hear God laugh the loudest? Tell him what your plans are. I've got two teenage children, and sometimes I come home and my boys are like, well, hey, Dad, I'm going to go here. I'm going to spend the night here, or someone's going to come over. And I'm like, really? Who did you ask for permission? Who did you ask? Who did you tell what your plans were? And if we're honest, a lot of time we act like teenage boys. We come to God and say, God, this is what I intend to do. And, and, and it's a good thing, God. So what I'm asking is for you to bless my things. We tell God what we're going to do after we do them. And God says, wait a second. Who did you come and ask for permission first? And I love what Proverbs 3, 6 says. It says this, acknowledge him in all that you do, all that you do, and he, God, will direct your paths. But we've got it reversed. We direct our paths, and then we acknowledge God. Oh, it's not going the way I want it. God, are you there? We're going to see that today. We're going to see how David has plans and how God responds. We're actually going to see three things Three things that are important to today's message. First of all, we're going to see David's plans. Then we're going to see God's response. And his response is this beautiful promise that he gives David. And then lastly, we're going to see how David responds to God. David's plans, God's response, and then David's response to that beautiful promise that God gives David. We're going to be doing uh, or looking over 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to cover the whole chapter, and I encourage you guys to open up your Bibles, follow along with me. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible underneath your desk. Grab it. The page number for that Bible is on your uh, notes inside your worship guide, so follow along. We are going to have the verses, as always, on the screen behind me, and I encourage you again to follow along. Let me open this up in prayer, and then we'll dig into God's message this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you so much, Father, that we can come to you, but we don't. Your word is here. You are there. But yet we make our plans without consulting you first. And Father, as we're going to see today, you know what's best. And Father, sometimes we buck against that. Sometimes we say, no, this is what's best. But Father, I pray that through today's message, we see that you are a sovereign God, that your purposes are so much bigger than anything we can ever imagine, that your plan for us is so much better than what we have planned for ourselves. So Father, as always, I just pray that you open our hearts, that you reveal to us the truth that you have to reveal. And Father, I pray that I'm just your vessel, that these words are spoken, spoken from you through me that hearts are changed, and we come out of here closer to your son, Jesus Christ, than ever. Lord, we love you and praise you, and we say all these things in your son's name. 
Amen. So 2 Samuel chapter 7. And before I jump into today's reading, I want to bring you up to speed where we're at, where we're going to start in today's verses. And we're in the middle of a series called Just Lead. As a matter of fact, this is the second part of our series. We started last semester with 1 Samuel, and we're jumping into 2 Samuel uh, this semester. And in 1 Samuel, we're introduced to this guy, this prophet Samuel. And God tells Samuel, go and anoint the future king, my future king of Israel. So Samuel goes out to the field, and he meets his young man, David, a young lad, 14 years old. And Samuel tells David, David, you are God's anointed. You will be Israel's future king. At 14 years old. See, at the time, Saul was king of Israel. And Saul was chosen by the people, not by God, but God gave his people what they asked for. So Saul was a king. They don't, we don't hear about David till chapters later where this giant of a man, Goliath, this warrior, comes before the Israelites. He's a Philistine. And he says, hey, I dare you guys to come and battle me. And no one of the Israelites wants to go and face this huge giant Goliath. But here's this young lad, David, who comes and defeats Goliath. And all the Israelites are cheering and they're thanking David for what he has done. And David's saying, it's not me, it's because of God has given me the strength to do that. And Saul, the king, brings David and says, David, I'm going to make you my commander-in-chief. I want you to come and live in my palace. And David does. And David starts maturing and he starts becoming this great warrior. He goes and fights all other tribes. He defeats them and the Israelites get stronger and stronger. But then Saul realizes that his people like David more than Saul. He becomes really jealous. And Saul just wants to go and kill David. And David's freaking out because at this time they were friends. And, and David's like, why do you want to kill me? My king, why? What have I done? Why are you out to kill me? And from that moment forward, David is a refugee, always on the run, hiding in caves, not being close to his family. For many, many years, this happens. And then at the end of 1 Samuel, we read that Saul, the king, dies. And David begins to mourn. And we see a lot about who David is because here's this guy, David, who knows he's going to be king. But he realizes that right now the king to be is Saul. And when he dies, he mourns for him. Saul, the guy who was after him, but yet David was hurt. He was crushed. But David doesn't become king right away because at the time, during the time, Israel was divided, divided into two sections, the northern part and the southern part. Southern part was Judah, and David took over the southern part. And it's not till 22 years, 22 years later 22 years later, when God first chose David as the future king, that he finally becomes king. 22 years, that's a long time to wait. And the first thing that David does is he finds the ark where God is, is his dwelling place. And he brings the ark in a tent and he brings it to the, to the center of Jerusalem. Because he knows that finally God is going to be with them. And here's where we're going to pick up the story where David, after many, many years, he's finally become king. So read with me verse 1 in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. It says this, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest. Who gave him rest? The Lord. It's important because we're going to see that how it un unveils as we read on. 
gave him a rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God he dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So let me summarize. After these many, many years of David being on the run, he finally, and this is why I picture it, he finally sits down. He's probably out in his balcony in his home. He's chilling. It's a nice evening. He's talking to, to Nathan. And I bet you if, if God, I don't know why, but if God would have put another verse in here, this is what he probably would have said. David would have said this. Entonces, ¿qué Nathan? ¿Se va a hacer o no se va a hacer la carnita asada? You know what I'm saying? He's chilling. He's relaxing. And as they're relaxing, talking to each other, David looks down and he sees a tent, a 400-year-old tent. The ark is in that tent. And he looks around and he sees this beautiful home where David is dwelling. And he tells Nathan, something doesn't seem right. Here we are in this luxurious home and look where God is in a tent. We need to build our God a better place than where we dwell in. He deserves it. And Nathan says, you know what? You're right. Look at us. Wow, and they kind of have feel this guilt, saying we need to build him a tent. But interestingly enough, take note of this observations. Throughout our stories of David, we always see David come before God all the time. He goes to God, God, should I go into battle? And he listens from God, and then he moves. If God says yes, he moves. If God says no, he doesn't. Every single time, except now. Nathan, he is a prophet. That is his job. He needs to come before God and ask God, God, what should your people do? Speak to me every single time, but not now. Not one of them come before God. They think of a plan, looks like it's pretty good. They want to honor God, nothing wrong with that. But yet they don't ask God before they move. And look how God responds to their plans. We see this in verse 4. Later on that night, God says this, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, God says. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And, and really, what he's answering is saying, no. He's laughing. He's like, you made your plans? <laughs> no. The answer is no. Not yet. And here's my first point to you guys is this. God's plan don't always meet my desires. God's plans don't always meet my desires. Can you guys relate to that? Can you guys relate to coming to God and saying, God, this is what I want. It's a good thing. Why is your answer no? Or why aren't you answering me? I don't understand, God. I've been single for many, many years, Father. Well, why haven't you given me a spouse? God, marriage is a good thing, isn't it? And I've been praying. Why, God? I don't understand. Father, my health is not where I want it to be. And I've been doing all these things. I've been praying to you. I've been coming to church. I I'm doing everything godly, but yet you are not responding father i don't have a job where are you a door opens and you shut it on my face why god why i i don't get it i need to support my family finances are important aren't they i understand what they mean I, i'm ready to do 
what I need to do to, to worship you with my finances, but yet you keep saying no. Does that sound familiar? I know I can relate, especially when it came to my finances. Years ago, about nine years ago, I was, my wife and I were in, in financial struggles, and I was doing everything godly, everything by the book, and I would come to God and say, God, what, what's going on? Why aren't you answering my prayers? And I realized this, that God sometimes says, not yet. I've got a bigger purpose. I've got a greater plan. Trust me. And now I can look back and say, wow, I, I get it. I understand now. You needed to carve away everything I had. You need to carve away all my possessions, and that way I can come truly to you with all my trust and with all my worship. Now I get it. Maybe God has you in that situation. You don't need to depend on a spouse. Depend on me first, and then maybe I'll give you a spouse. You are the way you are with your health because I want you to trust me and you're gonna be a testimony to so many people knowing that no matter if you're healthy or not healthy, you will still love me. See, God's plans, God's purposes are so much better than ours and all he's asking us is to trust him. He is a sovereign God. And he's telling David here, no, David, not yet. And there's two reasons why God says no. He's going to answer David. And I wish I was David because God doesn't answer me like this. But he does here. And I'm going I'm to ask you guys to put on your theological caps on. I'm going to give you a little lecture in seminary right now to why commentaries or what the commentaries call the responses. Why the no's. And here's your first no. It's called the incarnational principle incarnational principle. So when you're at work, you say, hey, do you know what the incarnational principle is? And they're going to say, no. Well, here it is. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. And this is what the incarnational principle says. God is still speaking. He says this, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I have moved with all people of Israel did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I've commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God is saying, have I ever asked for a house, David? God is saying, I am a God that is with my people. I am a God that knows my people. Your afflictions, my afflictions, are not alien to God. He knows. And God's saying, I am a God that if my people are wandering all over the place, I will be wandering all over the place. I am a God that if my people are poor, I will be poor. I am a God, he's saying, that if my people don't have a home, I don't want a home. If my people suffer, then I am a God who is going to suffer. I am a God that understands my people. The incarnational principle. The second why not, the second known is, no is known as the grace principle. The grace principle. And here's what the grace principle is in verse 8. God says this, Now therefore, 
Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pastors, from following the sheep, that you should be prince. Notice how he calls them prince over my people Israel. Again, in the first verse, who, who, who gave uh, him rest? Who gave David rest? The Lord. And now he's saying, I. He's saying, David, I'm the one that took you from being a shepherd boy, from leading sheep to leading people. I did it, David. You didn't do anything. It was because of me. And let me give you a little historical context that will bring this meaning a little more life. Back in the ancient times, it was a custom, it was a guarantee that whenever a king would take over a kingdom or defeat many nations, the first job that the king needed to do was build the pagan god a temple. And, and that was a way of saying, God, thank you for doing what you did for me. God, you scratch my back, I'm going to scratch your back, and here's the temple. And God, remember, there's a pretty big temple, so you pretty much have to guarantee my leadership in my kingdom. That's what the pagan belief was. And God is saying, I, I'm not like that, David. I don't want my people to think that I'm a, a God of contract. You do this for me, then I'll do this for me. If you do this, I will bless you. And God is saying, no, I'm a God of grace. A God that gives. A God that cares. Here's my second point to you guys. I don't do for God, I receive from God. I don't do for God, I receive from God. The grace principle is saying, remember David, remember Israel. I'm not like those other religions. I am a God that is of grace. I am a God that will provide. I am a God that all you need to do is trust and receive. Religion says you need to work to receive. My grace is just trust and you will receive. Religion says I need to do this in order to get that and do this and God is saying no. You don't need to do anything. Everything's been done for you at the cross. You don't have to obey to be loved. You want to obey because you've been loved. That is the grace principle. That is what God is telling David, Nathan, his people. I am a different God than all the other gods. I'm a God that understands. I'm a God of love and mercy. Remember that. David that is why not and then God goes on and it says God and it says David this is what I'm going to do for you I know you want to build me a house David but you know what I'm going to build you a house a better house my no my response to you is going to be so much better than you could ever imagine and here's God's response here's God's promise to David picking up in verse 9 he says this, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will, look, notice how he keeps saying, I will, I will. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. 
from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. God's saying, you want to make me a house? David, I'm going to give you a dynasty. Look what he says. When your days are fulfilled and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So he's saying here, David, this is my promise to you. I'm going to give you a dynasty. I'm going to give you a kingdom that you can never imagine. He says, even when you die, even when you lay with your fathers, I will still raise this kingdom, my promise, this dynasty. And he says this. He says, he shall build a house for my name. And that he right there, he's talking about Solomon. Solomon is the one that's going to eventually build this great temple for the Lord. Not now, David. I've got better plans. He says this, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So God is saying, even when your sons, even when Solomon, even when you disobey, because he is going to disobey, I'm going I'm to keep my promise. Even after all that, I am going to keep my promise to you. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So God is saying, David, look, look, look at my response. Look at my promise. And my promise is going to be true no matter what. Death is not going to stop my promise. Sin is not going to stop my promise. Time will not stop my promise forever, he says. I will establish it forever. Trust me, this is my response this is my promise to you and to my people and david starts to realize and here is the most important verse in the passage the davidic covenant verse 16 this is this is this is it this is the davidic covenant this is the promise in one sentence and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Twice, he repeats, forever, forever. Nothing's going to stop it, David. And David doesn't understand it now. But he knows that someone was to come and fulfill this covenant the davidic covenant and as we look back to genesis genesis 3 15 after uh, adam and eve disobeyed god and they and they bit of the forbidden fruit he goes to the serpent and he says from this day i'm going to establish this curse on you there'll be an enmity between you and the woman's seed eve's seed in other words he's saying that one day the seed of this woman is go is going to go on and the offspring is going to crush the heel or the head of the serpent. It'll bruise his heel, but crush and bruise his head. And this we see later in the fulfillment. When Jesus Christ came and he hung on the cross, he crushed the serpent head. He defeated sin for you and for me at the cross. That was his promise way back in the beginning. 
And then we move further up in Genesis, Genesis 12. We hear about this guy, Abraham. And God comes to Abraham and he says, you are going to have a lot of children. And this guy, Abraham, is really, really old. And he says, you will become a great nation. And other nations will be blessed because of your descendants. Because of your seed. Years later, we see that fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Years later, we see that when the one came, Jesus Christ stepped out of heaven. And those who trust in him are blessed. All the nations were blessed by that one who came after Abraham. And here in this Davidic covenant, God's telling David, from your offspring, there should be a greater king. The king of all kings who will reign forever. And I think this verse in Luke 1 captures this fulfillment. Where it says this, He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Years Thousands of years later from this promise, Jesus came and fulfilled the Davidic covenant. See, David was king, but he wasn't the king. And that's why God referred to him as a prince. Scott knew that he was not the king. David was given a kingdom, but he wasn't given the kingdom. Because the one that was to come, the greater David, was going to give him giving the kingdom. We see all these fulfillments, all these covenants, all these promises come to life, fulfilled by Jesus Christ. But not only that, when God became human in Jesus Christ and he stepped out of heaven to fulfill the Davidic covenant, to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, he also stepped out to fulfill the incarnational principle. See, the moment that God stepped down, he became Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus wandered all his life, and he did that so that you and I would be found. Jesus was poor, not, not having a single thing, and he did that so that you and I could inherit the riches of his kingdom. Jesus didn't have a home. He said, the birds have nests, the foxes have caves, but the Son of Man do not, does not have a bed to lay his head. And he didn't have a home. He was homeless so that you and I could have a home in eternity. Jesus suffered, suffered unto death. He died so that you and I could live. Those were the fulfillments. Those were the promises that God was sharing David. There is a greater David to come that will fulfill all these promises. Jesus also fulfilled the grace principle. He stepped out of heaven and took your sins and my sins. And when he hung on the cross and said, Father, it is finished, it was finished. Because you and I, could never accomplish what he did on the cross. Even though you and I deserve that death, he took it for us. 
And all he asks from you and from me is to accept and trust and have faith in the one that did the job for you and for me. That is the grace principle fulfilled. That is the God we worship. I love the way one commentary puts it when it comes to the grace principle. He says this, because every other religion says you have, you give God a good record. Then God owes you blessing. You do this and he'll do this. But Christianity says God gives you a perfect record through Jesus Christ who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. God gives you a perfect record through Jesus Christ and then you live for him. That's grace. And David is in awe of his response. So we've seen David's plans. We saw how God responds to David and that Davidic covenant and that beautiful promise of what he's going to fulfill in the future. Now we're going to see how David responds to God. And it's a beautiful prayer. And here's my third and final point to you guys. I must be grateful for God's present plan, past provision, and future promises. I must be grateful for God's present plan, past provision, and future promises. And when you see all these three things in, God, in, in David's prayer to God, picking up in verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes. O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house. Notice, we're going to see that he's going to be repeating himself. David's going to say, your servant, your servant. Not once does he refer to himself as king. It's always your servant. You have, have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. Oh, Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servants. Oh, Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought all about, you have brought about all these greatness to make your servant know it. Here David is just sitting back and realizing, you are a sovereign God. You know so much better than I do. And I should just sit back and humbly respect that. I should just be your servant and respond to what you have to tell me. God is, I mean, David is recognizing God's present plan and how God is there with him. How God is there with him now how God has always been there with him before and how God is going to be with him in the future. He goes on and he recognizes uh, God's greatness in his past. Verse 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you, according to all that you have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its God. David is praying, saying, I recognize how you've always been there. You are the God that brought your Israelite people out of Egypt. You are the God that's been there, cut, put them through the Red Sea. You are the God that has, has promised us the land, and now we are here. You are a God that's made me king. 
I can look back and be thankful for your past provisions. You've always been there. As I sit with people and I ask them to share their spiritual journey with me, 99.9% of the time they, they look back and they can reflect as they're thinking that God has been there with them. Every step of the way. And because of that, because David recognizes that God is a God that keeps his promise, he can go with confidence and see in the future. And look how David responds finally in his last verses of his prayer. It says this, And you establish for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant, David, will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. He's saying, God, I know you're a God of promises and I have the courage and I know that what you have said, what you have spoken will be true. I know they have better plans for me, for your people. And I trust in those plans. Not mine, but yours. Imagine a church. Imagine a church that was like David. And before taking any steps whatsoever, before even doing anything that seemed good, you would come to God and ask God, are these the right things? They seem right. But I want you to confirm. Imagine a church that even when we came to God with our best plans and God said no, we would have the trust knowing that God has been with us from the very beginning and God will be, this, be with us to the very end. And we can sit back and say, God, I get it. I get it that your plans are greater than mine. I don't understand. I don't like the answer. But God, I trust you. Imagine that church. Imagine a church that no matter what difficulties they were going through, they could sit back and trust in a sovereign God. We make an impact, not just in Laredo, but maybe our whole nation. As I'm listening to the sermon and the series and I'm preparing for this sermon, I compare myself a lot to David. See, I know David probably was a little nervous. He probably didn't know what it meant to be king, to be the leader of Israel, to be the leader of God's people. He probably had an idea, but he wasn't sure what it meant, what it represented. And David, David didn't have a good mentor. I mean, the guy before him that came before him was Saul. David couldn't come to Saul and say, hey, Saul, I'm going to be leader soon. What do I do? And I know for a fact that David didn't go to king school. There wasn't anything as king school leadership. 
classes. But I know this. I know David had a heart for the Lord like no other. David loved the Lord like no other. And David loved the people. As I move into this new transition, I'm humbled. And David was humbled. But unlike David, I have a great mentor in Pastor Chad. And unlike David, I've got seminary. <laughs> but like David, oh man, I've got a heart for the Lord that you guys can't even imagine. And like David, I have a heart for his people. I love Laredo. This is my hometown. I have the heart for people who have not received the good news. And like David, when I become senior pastor, I'm going to be humbly serving God, period. See, David's first mission when he became king, he bought the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelled, and he put it right in the middle of the city. You know why? So all the Israelites can say, this is a true leader, this is a true king, not me. I want all of us to know that I'm just here as a leader, and he is the true king. He is the head of our church, so it doesn't matter who is the leader. He is the leader forever. And all I'm asking is to come alongside with me and have that vision to reach the unreached, to lead our city to a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ and this church. Come along with my passion to do that, and you'll see amazing things. Now, I know some of you are questioning, well, you guys, what does he know? I know some of you care about how much I know. It's okay. But I want you guys to know this. I want you to know how much I care. And man, I care. And I think there's one of the most important skills of a leader. I'm just here to be a servant. And I care for God. And I care for his people. I care for you. But most of all, I'm tough, all right? I'm a tough pastor. Let's pray. Thank you, God.